0: Hi, and welcome to Security Explained. I'm Chris Grayson. I'm Drew Porter. And I'm Logan Lamb. We're coming to you every two weeks with tips and tricks on how to protect yourself and your loved ones out there on the internet and in real life. Has your computer ever been running slow? Has your antivirus screamed at you about an infection? Have you ever had to pay up because your computer got infected by ransomware? If you answered yes to any of these questions, you may have unwittingly been part of a botnet. What is a botnet, you ask? Well, we have an industry-leading expert on the subject joining us today to tell you. Let's get started. So first off, Yusin, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we have my, our good friend, Yusin Naji, Najee, uh, who I met at Georgia Tech when I was a grad student, and he got a PhD from there focused on understanding botnet infrastructure and using that understanding to inform botnet takedowns. And so I, I find that super interesting. And I think as we talk a bit more about what botnets actually are and what they do and how hard they are to take down, uh, you'll probably think so too. And I, I see there's a note here that he added that he's also a pee-chilled dude. <laughs> so Yasin, <thank laughs> you seen thank you. Yeah, thanks for joining us, man. It's good, good to have you here.
1: Well, thanks for having me. Uh, been uh, listening to the podcast and enjoying it, and I'm glad I can contribute in a small way. Awesome.
0: So, yeah, we're going to be talking about botnets today, and you know, it's it's a pretty common topic to be bringing up within the realm of uh, within the security realm, right? We talk about them kind of like all the time, but I feel like it's a term that is probably not all that commonly understood outside of security. So, can you take a few minutes and tell us what exactly is a botnet?
1: Yeah. Um, so basically when your computer becomes infected with malware, oftentimes it joins what we've been talking about is that it's a botnet, which basically means it's a collection of these infected hosts where one individual, usually referred to as the bot master or the bot herder can issue commands to the infected hosts. Um, as a common example, a lot of them are used to send spam. So if I have an army of, I don't know, a hundred thousand infected hosts with, uh, I can send them an issue to send out all this spam email to these billion email addresses. Uh, and there are a lot of different ways you can kind of monetize a botnet or use one. Um, but at, at its core, it's a collection of computers that are working together. Um, you can kind of even think of this as like, you know, SETI at home or protein folding, <laughs> these kind of things. Where it's it's basically a, a large distributed computing resource, yeah. right? So you're you're using a bunch of machines to do one thing, yeah, and that one thing is usually bad.
0: <laughs> yeah, usually bad. I you know when I was putting the um, when I was putting the agenda together for this episode, I was thinking about like how how are botnets monetized, and I was thinking like, could you have because I know at AWS they have this. Um, this thing where you can effectively bid on computing resources and you'll get allocated mm-hmm. like an EC2 instance or something. And then your compute load, it's like, I, I wonder if there's any things that look like cloud computing platforms that are actually just on the back of a botnet. Uh, I think that'd be a pretty, that, that'd be a really new age botnet monetization scheme.
1: Oh, oh, for sure. And I mean, the most uh, kind of direct application of that is is used for Bitcoin mining. Mm. Um well probably not Bitcoin anymore, but pick your coin of the
0: week. Dogecoin. Uh, I, I heard there's a Waifu coin. It's mm-hmm. yeah. No,
1: no, and several of these are are botnets are employed to to do this. Uh I think it's I don't know how much money they're actually making, but going back to that distributed computing resource, yeah, a hundred percent um can be used for that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, I mentioned that, you know, kind of in the intro. If your computer's ever been running slow or antivirus has ever been screaming at you about an infection that you might have been part of a botnet, um, can you tell us a little bit about how these how these kind of clusters of computing power actually formed?
1: So in the early days, a lot of them were done through basically a worm capability, um, which means there was some vulnerability in the system that you were running, be it uh, like an actual vulnerability where I can send... Bad internet traffic at you and force you to run my code, you know, or or a remote code execution. Those have been slowly patched over the years, so it's a lot harder for that to happen. So now it's really whatever the attacker can manage to convince you to do. So this might be spam or phishing emails, or I guess spam specifically, where, you know, you click and download something and run a thing that you shouldn't have. It could be injecting Malicious code into cracked crack software, uh, it could be plugging in a thumb drive that you found on the ground. Um, you know, really, whatever way an attacker can take advantage of of getting some code to run on your machine, uh, they'll take advantage of it for the, for a botnet. And
0: and do you have any sense for you know, th- there's all sorts of malware out there, right? There's like ransomware. There's you know, mm-hmm. I, well, it, there's there's malware that can do all sorts of different stuff. If I do get infected, am I always going to be in a botnet or is this just kind of like a niche thing when it comes to the malware that's that's running around on the internet?
1: Um, it depends how broadly you define botnet. Um, and, and so it, in a broad definition of some sort of collection of infected machines that are given instructions, I'd say most of the time that you're infected, you're part of a botnet. I mean, the reason is because in order to successfully monetize it, the owner of the infection needs a reliable way to communicate with the hosts to perform that action. So, um, and then on top of it, a lot of infections don't necessarily do just one thing. So you may have a botnet that sole purpose is to sell infections to other people. So let's say I have a really great exploit. I'm able to infect a bunch of machines. I have a botnet now. But I can actually sell these infected hosts to other malicious actors so they can do whatever they want with it. And I make a pretty penny only doing that. And this is technically a botnet still, right? Because there's a way of, of you know, I'm basically saying uh, all of my infected hosts download the payload that, uh, you know, whatever <laughs> person X has paid me for to get an infection in the United States or in South Africa or wherever, Um, So the the market's pretty sophisticated for this. And because of that, the communication mechanisms themselves tend to be pretty either robust or at least exist. And and that's kind of like the main thing that turns something into a botnet versus not.
0: That that sounds to me like you're effectively an illicit computing pool landlord when you're a botnet operator. It's like, oh, I have all these empty apartments. Would you like to live in them? (laughs) There's other tenants in there.
1: It's funny that you mentioned the other tenants thing because researchers studied this phenomenon. They they called it pay per install, which is basically, "Well, I pay you X amount of dollars for a thousand installs uh, on, you know, a thousand infected hosts." And and they found in the process of doing it that the the bot herders were promising sole tenancy on these machines, (laughs) um, but were in fact selling it to multiple different. other bot masters, because <laughs> why the hell not? Like, yep, I mean, yep. you make, you make more money. Um, it, people are probably not actively looking for it. They also don't have a support
0: uh, ticketing system. <laughs>
1: well, <laughs> sometimes they do. Sometimes the, the systems are pretty elaborate for, for, uh, complaining that you're installed. didn't work. Um, it, it's, it's a, it's a robust economy. It's not, you know, just a bunch of kids in the basement messing around. It, it's, there's real money involved so there are real there's a service line that you can call they they tried this as well where uh you know they're infiltrating the forums where people are advertising these services um, and folks called in and they were able to get tech support <laughs> that's so <laughs> Which, nice. I mean, that's wild wow, nice. it's crazy but but it's very true yeah
0: that's uh that that reminds me of a time a family member in a, in a panic something happened on their computer in a panic, they Googled like, "Oh, I need tech support," and like the the top hit was a scam. Um, and <laughs> like they called the number, ran some software on their computer, and then all of a sudden, their computer's infected. And it's just like, so I guess they they, they not only do they have support numbers to handle the actual support tickets, they have support numbers to get you into the botnet as well. Yep. Sophisticated well, and for indeed. the low,
1: low price of $49.99, they can clean that infection for you like, right away. So like, you've got no issue. It, it's perfect. It's a, Bitcoin
0: preferable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Any, anything you know, fairly anonymous. Yeah, de- definitely not Venmo. Um, yeah, no. And so who are the parties that run these botnets? You say it's not a bunch of kids in a basement. I'm sure there are a bunch of kids in a basement somewhere running a botnet, but they're probably the exception who Who are the parties that are typically the operating this space? um
1: it, it depends on kind of the purpose of of the botnet. so the one we think of the most are kind of organized crime fraudsters, basically um and and pick your uh country of origin for the week, but it's people looking to make money and sometimes crime pays uh at least in this case, it typically does, so that's kind of a big uh, thrust You see them sometimes being used. albeit less commonly, on behalf of a nation-state. There have been instances where uh, China has used it for um, espionage purposes or, you know, DDoSing, things like that. Um, There are also the kind of script kiddies just having fun. Um, There's an interesting uh, kind of, what they would call like volunteer or hacktivist botnets. Um, Where rather than, you know, doing this for financial gain, they actually do it for some sort of cause that they're supporting. Um, The the easiest one to reference is is 4chan's uh, low-earth, low-orbit ion cannon. Uh, It's, you know, a bunch of people join in, they download the software, and it's used for DDoSing stuff for, you know, internet points or whatever. (laughs) Um, But there have been other instances... Uh, I I think specifically due to the, you know, um, Palestinian-Israeli conflict of people using uh, that, uh, basically joining in for that cause for hacktivist purposes for DDoSing, I don't know, Israeli military websites or something like that. Um, So there are also these instances where it's not necessarily for profit. More or less what I've seen and and read, uh, a lot of it tends to be, you know, organized crime, fraudsters, uh, folks of that nature.
0: Just a tip: Do not go and try to find the low overt ion cannon and download it onto your computer. Yeah, uh, there I would been. highly
1: recommend against it. Yes,
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> strongly agree, Drew. I, I remember back um, back when I first heard about that, it was through Anonymous. Right? there was the whole like Anonymous, <laughs> you know, hacktivism group. And you know, my take on on what was going on with Anonymous is you had a handful of people that really knew their stuff that actually knew, like, these are the targets we're going to go after, this is what we're going to do, whatever. And then they have an army of people that have no idea what they're doing, but are willing to download a random piece of software and run it and then target it at something and let it keep going. And the thing is, this works out really well for the people that are running this thing because so long as they maintain relative anonymity, they're not the ones that are actually directly attacking anything. So it's almost like, uh, yeah, you basically have an army of kids that are like, activism, yay, that run this software that they don't understand what they're doing, where they're actually committing a felony, uh, at least within the continental United States, and the people that are actually orchestrating everything are, are nowhere to be found.
1: 100%. Um, and, and that's the the perfect makings of a botnet right there.
0: <laughs> it's just 4chan. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey,
1: if it works, I don't know.
0: I one of one of my favorite sayings with respect to building anything is if it works and it's stupid, it still works. Uh, <laughs> and so so back in back in school, I remembered you know there's so many security research papers that are I, I don't know, just crazy interesting. I mean, like I, I think one of the papers that initially kind of sold me on on the industry was Patrick Trainer's work with uh with the pin drop platform where it's like oh i can tell Mm. I, i can i can tell you know the provenance of a phone call or or the other one where it was uh it was vibrations um vibrations in a keyboard as detected by a um by an accelerometer in a phone you can tell what somebody's typing and i remember one of the other papers that really caught my attention was this this it was it was like not sure where it is on the ethics scale uh but they decided oh, to yeah. publish it anyways uh and it was where a group of researchers effectively hijacked part of a botnet to research how the botnet works do you remember that paper can you talk to us about it
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, no, no. This was a really, really cool one. I believe... That, so, so there are actually several of these. Um, But I think the most famous one was the UC Santa Barbara people where they took over part of uh, TorPig, the botnet. It's also called SinoWall. And it, it's, it's interesting, one, because of the ethics thing you mentioned. Actually, from now on, the... the Paper acceptance committees for the you know in academia are a lot stricter. <laughs> uh, basically, after that, there was a bit there was a bit of an outcry, I think, associated with this particular paper. But essentially, what the researchers were able to do, as you said, was take over part of the botnet. Um, and, and this seems kind of complicated. And let me try to explain how it was done, and then what they were able to do with it, and then also what subsequent researchers did with that information. So the first thing you needed to know about this particular botnet was it didn't have like a robust kind of authentication and encryption encrypted communication channel. It was like a simple scheme uh, that researchers prior had reversed. So this allowed uh, uh, an, a group of researchers to create a server that looked like one, a legitimate one for this particular botnet. Maybe let me take a step back actually. So when you get infected, your machine actually communicates with a server somewhere on the internet. And um, we typically call this the command and control server. <clears throat> and what this does is this is this is what the, the bot herder then gives commands to this, this CNC or C2 server. And then the bot infected periodically reaches out to go, Hey, do you have any new commands for me? You know, do you have any new email you need me to send? Are there any binaries I should download and run? and there are myriad ways to communicate or set up this infrastructure, but the way this one specifically did it was it would randomly generate domains to reach out to um, a domain you know like google.com but they would do it in a random way this was presumably to make it more agile this makes it a little bit harder to to defend. Uh, for, for the good guys. But because malware researchers have spent a lot of time understanding how this algorithm worked, they were able to predict in the future which domains would be used. And by doing this, b- basically, since you have this, you know what, for example, tomorrow's domain name will be. And then on the other hand, you understand how this command and control server operates. You've reverse engineered that method of communication. All you need to do is register the right domain names and set up servers that are pointed to by those domain names that respond with the correct commands that the malware expects, and it will happily continue to operate as normal. So what the attackers or what the researchers did um, was was do precisely this: they pre-registered several domains for a couple of weeks. Uh, set up these fake command and control servers and just waited and listened. Torpig was interesting in that it, um, once it had a successful connection, it started doing its malicious purpose, which in this case was stealing uh, sensitive information. So you can think of this, this is, uh, you know, logins to PayPal, logins to your bank account. Uh, it would scan your hard drive to look for credit cards and would send the credit card information. So <laughs> So the moment... It connects to this fake server and it gets the thumbs up. Everything's okay. It just starts dumping all the information it has uh, that it's harvested from this computer <laughs> and from these hapless users um, onto the server. Now, the researchers did some good stuff in encrypting the data and immediately pulling it off, so the botmaster was unlikely to be able to to get it. Um, but they found some interesting things. Uh, mostly, they saw you know the uh, kind of the type of information that was stolen. This is how we know we saw credit cards and things like that. And because they had infected it, they were able to get a more accurate count of the size of the botnet, uh, which seems like it would be easy to do, but it's actually pretty hard. Um, I'm trying to think there's some interesting anecdotes. Uh, One of them was uh, 86% of the victims contributed only a single credit card number, but there was a case where a single victim, um, had submitted up to 30 credit card numbers. Uh, and they dug into it a little bit more to understand who's got 30 credit cards. So this seems a little <laughs> excessive, right? Uh, and it turns out they were able to identify, like isolate where the, the, the host was coming from. And it was coming from a call center where the person who was uh, working in the call center was like entering customer credit cards to help oh, with. Oh man, with, oh wow. And all of those were ending up going uh, out. One more, I guess, caveat I should have explained earlier is kind of how it worked. Basically, when the computer was infected, they would inject into the browser for certain domain names, uh, a new web form. So it's on the browser, it can do whatever it wants. So now when you go into PayPal.com, it looks like PayPal.com, you still see the lock for HTTPS. uh, But the form that's there has been tampered on the machine or in the browser. And this is what allows them to, you know, you put in your username and password. I think it submits it to PayPal, logs you in successfully, but it also sends that data uh, to this command and control server that the researchers were operating. Funny note, after 10 days, uh, the botmasters realized uh, that people were tampering with it and pushed a new binary out and severed control uh, for the researchers. They completely changed the algorithm that was used to, to generate the domain names. So the researchers lost access after only
0: 10 days. That's still, that's still a super interesting 10 days though. And that's... Oh, yeah. Um, so one of the reasons that this is such a contentious thing, because honestly, I can't think of another sphere in which somebody would be comfortable publicly saying, oh, yes, I hijacked part of a botnet other than academia. Um, because <laughs> in the United States we have something called the CFAA or the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, and this is the main piece of federal legislation that you're gonna get hit with if you're caught hacking. Um, and it's really it's it's worded in such a way that you, as a completely non-technical person or somebody that's not actually trying to do anything malicious, you're probably in violation of this law multiple times a day. Um, so it's not it's not something that is actually like, like I. I don't know the exact language, but it's something to the effect of if you, for, if you cause a computer to run a command that you didn't have permission to do. And it's like, good luck convincing a jury of non-technical people what that actually means. Um, and so, it's less a question of, are you in violation of it? And more a question of, is there somebody with sufficiently deep pockets that wants to prosecute you um, as a result of it or wants to go after you? Uh, you know, here within this group, we actually know some people that uh, have been hit with this law. And it's not very fun, so it's a you know it it's it's a felony so so here we have academic researchers submitting to a uh, you know, submitting their paper where it's like yes we uh, we are kind of related to massive amounts of computers getting infected and getting data from them, and they're like, yeah, cool sounds good so that's that's super interesting to know that they uh that ever since then the Restrictions on submitting that sort of work have uh, gone up.
1: Yeah, and, well, and not to paint them in a bad light, they—they, they, I, I agree. The it's an ethical gray area, but there were steps taken to kind of um, alleviate some of the problems or make folks more comfortable with it. So, for example, with this particular threat, you could push down. Uh, they were in control and were able to say push down a new configuration, which would say, for example, "Oh, don't, don't do the hijacking for any domains." Basically, so it would not steal any of the user's information. Or you could even push down a new config to say, "I'm not a good uh, command and control server, and actually, there aren't any that you can trust." And effectively, you know, clean up that host. Uh, but that feels more close to this, I'm tampering with someone else's machine territory. So by kind of leaving their hands off and letting it run as normal, it's like kind of watching a train wreck happen. You know, you, you, they're not stopping it, but if, if they stopped it in a way that was a problem, it could get them into more trouble.
0: Yep. The Computer Fraud and Abuse Act is a travesty. Uh, First and foremost. so like I this research is super interesting, and this research is the sort of stuff that we need to actually stop uh, the this sort of bad behavior. at least it, it feeds into to our ability to to take botnets down. So I am fully supportive of it. And yeah, I remember reading that paper and being like, oh yes, we def- defanged, I think is the the term that they used uh, the the botnet parts that they that that they had access to. But again, like, like what you're saying is, if you are actively manipulating the computers that are infected then you are more obviously in violation of this law which is to say it's you know that you actually don't want to do that and you do want to watch the train wreck and i remember like there wasn't there a worm once upon a time that was it, it, it was like a reference to a vaccine and actually the the host that it infected it actually like got rid of a bunch of malware or like cleaned it up <laughs> or changed the config or changed the password or something and i remember this has been a, a recurring theme of like these and well-intentioned worms that are supposed to improve security uh, in the hosts that it infects. But again, there's no, the law makes no distinction um, for intent.
1: Exactly. And that's a kind of difficult area to, to, to tread because you could see benefits to, oh, well, if, if there's a vulnerability in this particular malware or botnet, we could clean up all the hosts on the internet and solve the problem. But the, the example I see a lot in academic papers at least is, well, what if the machine that's running that malware is a ventilator in a hospital <laughs> yeah, right. and yeah. by cleaning it up you corrupt the memory on it and someone dies? You know, so they kind of have this, I don't know, elaborate example, but, but that's the kind of fear here. Whereas, well, what if the machine that I'm tampering with is critical infrastructure? Mm-hmm. And you know, if I'm pushing out some update to a botnet. To, to, to clean it, I'm not running continuous integration on this. I haven't tested this <laughs> on all the different kinds of operating systems <laughs> and flavors. So so unintended effects could very well happen. Yep. So the fear there is like, well, I don't want to destroy some hospital or power center or, you know, something along those lines. So I think the fears are well-founded, but it, it's it, it's enticing for sure if you could use it for good.
0: So, you mentioned that the mechanism that was used in this paper to hijack this botnet was effectively targeting the command and control. And, you know, as, as somebody that's, you know, kind of tangentially aware of this stuff, it sounds like command and control is really the Achilles heel of these botnets. Um, what have you seen in terms of how these botnets are controlled? I, it sounds like they get quite creative.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's funny. So early on, I think a lot of them used IRC, actually. Uh, People, the hackers themselves, are chilling in IRC channels. So uh, I guess maybe a quick explanatory. This is like Slack before Slack existed, (laughs) more or less. Old school Slack. Kind of summarize it. Old school Slack, yeah. And it was kind of favored by hacker community, programmers, things like that, people like that. And... Basically, when your computer was infected, it joined a chat channel, you know, with its I I'm, I'm Chris's Windows CE box that he still has for some reason. <laughs> and then it's just listening on the chat channel for the bot herder to mention what action to perform, you know, oh, send a bunch of traffic uh, to Drew's website so we can DDoS it. Ha 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 ha. You know, things like that. Um. That fell out of favor pretty quickly because it's really easy to identify IRC traffic. Um, it's running on a weird port. Um, unless they had SSL set up, it was running in the clear. Most of them were running in the clear. And, and early papers will talk about the kind of uh, command structure that these bots would use. And that for a long time, from what I understand early on, if, if you saw IRC traffic, you didn't know what it was on your network, you were almost certainly infected. So that fell out of favor. And then kind of the next step was really just using HTTP. Um, and there's a lot of good reasons for it. Uh, the main one is it's, there's a lot of HTTP traffic on a network. So if you're trying to find weird stuff, the, you're not going to look at HTTP and go, ah, something's strange here, like you would for IRC. Um, and then it's also almost never blocked in a network, right? Corporate networks might block IRC ports or ports for popular video games or things like that. But no one's blocking port 80 or port 443. That's just not going to happen, um, at least for uh, on the requesting end. And then on top of that, they started doing some interesting things to to become more agile. As you said, it's the Achilles heel. If you eliminate all the command and control servers, the bot master can no longer you know, make money off the botnet or or update it more or less. So they need to maintain control of this. So you'd start with, oh, if there's just some IP address out there, that's the one command and control, everything's fine. It's hard coded in the malware to reach out to this particular website. Obviously that has these problems, single point of failure, right? So now we have multiple IPs uh, and also hard code them into the malware then we kind of start using domain names to make things a little bit more reliable. You have a point of indirection here. So if I have 100 hard-coded domain mm-hmm. names, if the ISP that's, that's running my command and control server realizes I'm a command and control server uh, and they take me down, I just point my domain somewhere else and I don't have that issue. Then the domain registrars start to get... Uh, kind of wind of this. And now you can complain to a different organization to say, Oh, this domain name itself is bad. That gets removed. So this is when they started to do this uh, domain name generation algorithm or DGA approach, where I synchronize in all my infections, usually by something like time, where on this day, I'm going to generate a set of random looking domains. Now, they'll be the same as long as they have what's called the seed. So this is like the the thing that initiates a a random-ish process that runs on your computer. And what this ensures is that all the hosts generate the same set of domains every day. And the reason this is nice is the attackers don't have to register all of those domains. They're pretty cheap. And they change every day. So if you disable or add to your block list the domains you saw today, they won't be the same domains you see tomorrow. And the attackers are able to get a lot of agility out of this. And the kind of and that's probably one of the more popular schemes right now. Um, th- there's some nice benefits for defenders that I'll get into, um, but that's kind of the rough idea there with the HTTP DGA kind of setup. Um, and then there are known peer-to-peer botnets that sometimes rely on existing peer-to-peer networks, like um Nutella is one of them. I don't remember the names of all of these, but or they have their own peer-to-peer overlay networks that they build. Uh, these ones are notoriously difficult to take down for obvious reasons. I mean, it works in a peer-to-peer fashion. And you start having to do crazy attacks like, well, you have to join the botnet, but then have enough machines to cover over 51% of it. And then you can start mounting some clever attacks. Uh, But a bigger problem with them is is they tend to be noisy. You know, they're they're sending stuff to a lot of different IP addresses all at once. uh, And they aren't using more standard protocols like HTTP and DNS. So they might look strange. On a on a network, particularly one that's heavily locked down, you that traffic would stick out like a sore thumb if, if for a for a kind of sophisticated uh, networking group or security group. So things kind of shifted more towards this like HTTP DNS approach. That sorry, lots of acronyms there.
0: That, that, that's that I. You know, getting into security, I think one of the things that I initially struggled with is it's alphabet soup all the way down. It's just acronyms <laughs> on acronyms on acronyms. Um, yeah. But I, I had my own research project once upon a time where I uh, basically scraped all of a popular paste hosting site. So basically, it's just a website that you can go to and you can take some text, you can drop it into it, press a button, and it saves it to the website. And then you can send a link to somebody else. And then you get the uh, you get the content of that that post. Um, it's it's effectively meant for just like copy pasting to other people. But I'll tell tell you what that functionality is exactly what you need when you're controlling a botnet. Is like I'm going to post a message here and then have everybody else consume it. Um, so as I scraped all of the all of the posts on this website, it was like there is clearly command and control like data on a bunch of these posts so yeah it, it if you're wanting to if you're wanting to disguise yourself uh staying in http seems like a pretty it's and like https as well you have let's encrypt so you can encrypt your traffic yep. and it's gonna be it, it. it's just gonna be a real mess to to try and try and dig in and and, and find that um yep
1: it's good to bring up the pastebin. Uh, I had neglected to mention that. And, and there are other ones. I think there was at least one popular botnet that used uh, Twitter accounts and Twitter posts. Um, and some that would even just use whatever the most popular, you know, Twitter uh, keyword was of the day, they would use that to see some other random pseudo random algorithm down the road. Um, the, the tricky thing with those is you're really putting all your eggs in one basket. If if Pastebin decides all of a sudden to like get re- cracked down really hard on obvious command and control abuses, uh, you know your botnet's gone. Um, so, and that's kind of the next or another stage in this the evolution that you've seen is is they don't rely on one mechanism uh, to to kind of keep the command and control servers online. They have several that they will rely on. So uh, Zeus, I know, is a popular one that has kind of run the gamut of the approaches and will fall back to... you know if there's a peer-to-peer variant that falls back to using domain names in HTTP if it's unable to find clients, uh, there's a version, I think, that does it the other way around. Uh, and I have seen several DGA-enabled malware that if it's unable to reach those particular hosts because the researchers have taken them over, like our friends at Santa Barbara did, it, it relies on some hard-coded uh, servers that they were more confident and able to trust to, to reach out. And so, for the botmaster, the goal is really to never lose uh, control of the the bots themselves, and that's that's kind of the main way to do it. And
0: and one thing that kind of I hadn't thought about much before, but in in this discussion is is Coming up in my in my mind is that it sounds like these are effectively kind of like flocks that these bot masters are kind of grooming, right? So it's like it might be that they lose some over time, but as long as their attrition rate is lower than their growth rate, then they just continue to accrue more and more hosts. I mean, is it is it is it typically the case that there's some malicious actor that just gets a massive botnet and they operate it for a bit and then it just gets completely shut down and then they have zero zero bots, or is it just these are these tend to be the same groups over time. They're evolving. They're growing their botnets. They're losing some here and there, uh, but at the same time, it, it it's just it's this flock that they are continuing to cultivate. Gotcha.
1: So uh, th- they definitely are, you know, protective, um, much like a flock, as as you kind of used in your analogy here, where they're wanting to grow it. Typically, growth means more money for them, and they can provide more services. Um, th- that said, there have been numerous cases. Ah, yeah, about the takedowns. There have been numerous cases where parts or most of a botnet were taken down, but the people behind the botnet were never found or arrested, and the malicious activity kind of quickly resumed. But this was early on. There was a known uh, internet service provider that really just you know, ignored abuse complaints, kind of did whatever. And there was a very large spam botnet. I forget the name off the top of my head um, that ran their op- operations primarily out of this ISP. And the internet community actually got people to de-peer with the ISP. This is basically kicking the, I- the ISP off the internet, more or less. Um, and we, you could see spam levels like plummeted, like eighty five percent, like in the world. At the time, it was one of the largest or the largest spam botnet. But in a matter of weeks, they were back sending spam email. So, and this is kind of one of the trends I've seen where it's like it's useful to disable a botnet, and and a lot of folks spend time trying to hampering their growth or bringing attention to them to make the the operators a little bit afraid, but unless the perpetrators are arrested at the end, they still have all their infrastructure. They still have all their code. So it's, it's pretty, it's relatively easy to restart operations than it would be to start from scratch. You know, they still have some of the the, the hard work that they built on uh, to, to resume operations. That said, there have been other instances where after a shutdown, you know, I think the... Uh, Operators are maybe a bit afraid of legal action or getting arrested, and kind of, you know, cool things off. A, a pretty famous example actually is a Conficker, which was at the time the largest botnet. Everybody was freaking out. It was it was I don't know, ten to fifteen million estimated infected hosts at the time, and, and that's enough that they could take out sizable chunks of core backbone internet infrastructure at the time, and there was so much attention drawn to it that Confuca really didn't do a whole lot of (laughs) malicious activity, but you got to imagine, I mean, if this is, it it spread like a worm. So it might've spread faster than the authors intended. And it's possible that they were just afraid of the publicity because it, it, I mean, it was the first example of this working group uh, mentality where academia, industry, and government kind of all joined forces to try to, manage and take down a threat of this size. So I think they panicked and didn't really do a whole lot with it afterwards. Uh, it's unclear to me if if taking down the botnet is, is sufficient enough to to kind of solve the problem. Because if the know-how and the code and tools are still out there, it's pretty easy for them to spin up a new one.
0: And that's, that's an interesting thing to me because in, in my perception, I mean, I, I know... One of the one of the botnets that we're going to talk about here in a minute, um, it's like it was gained, I think, via like the Eternal Blue exploit, if I'm remembering the the name of that mm. exploit correctly, where it's like a vulnerability mm. in Windows SMB where completely unauthenticated you have remote code execution, and I remember this was a this was a huge deal, and they very quickly pushed out a patch, and. Uh, I remember I was doing pen testing at the time, and it was like after the patch was pushed out, it was really hard to find hosts that were still vulnerable to it. Or at least at like these big enterprises where they're they're taking it seriously. So, so you know, one of the open questions in my mind is, is it really that these botnets are using such unsophisticated attacks that it's like, well, it's it's a twenty-year-old machine that's running services that never get updated. We're just going to infect it again, or like, is there you know there there are these. uh points in time where there's an opportunity to say, ooh, the whole world is vulnerable to this right now. First, the early bird gets the worm. Whoever scans everything and pops the exploit is going to get everything. And that window is going to be closed soon. Um, Do you have any sense for when these botnets are growing? Is it fancy stuff where they're growing by big amounts or is it just the like, I'm going to send this spam saying that I'm a Nigerian prince and that I need you to run this software and it's just going to work because humans.
1: <laughs> um, yeah. Interesting question. It, it, it There's always going to be low hanging fruit that just kind of relies on old exploits or even patched ones and just kind of hope it works. But it's important to note that that, um, can still be fairly successful, especially if you're dealing with like unlicensed software that's no longer having updates available. I, I mean, this is one of the reasons Microsoft supported Windows XP for so long and then also started pushing updates to pirated versions of their operating system because it was like a problem to the general health of the internet. Um, <laughs> if, if if these things don't update and they're still vulnerable to this, you could still amass a reasonable botnet army. Um with with relative ease, and, and I think it's just kind of a mixture of things. I, I really wish I knew there was a a good breakdown for you know common infection vectors for this. But I mean, even the the a more recent example, Mirai. I don't know if we're going to talk about that, but a little spoiler: it it, it does it by brute forcing passwords because there are default passwords on devices, you know. And this is in 2016, so there's always going to be some low-hanging fruit for people to take advantage of, or it seems like that at least. I I don't see any signs of it stopping. And if that can get you a botnet that has 100,000, 500,000, a million infected hosts, why the hell not? Like, it's going to work, you know?
0: All right. So, I want to take a few minutes to talk about uh, what was, you know, really one of the heavy focuses of your research, which is... Okay, so these things seem awfully ungainly. They, the people operating them are clever. They've continued to evolve. They're finding ways to have resilient command and control. So how do you actually take them down?
1: Yeah, um, and, and this is tricky. I, I, sometimes I tell people the, um, the answer that my dissertation found was it's usually a bad idea to try to do a takedown. Um, and it's particularly bad if you don't have a good idea and good evidence of who's behind it. because I think the main thing that I took away from from the research that I did and the studies of botnet takedowns that that um, were done by the community is taking it down is like a very temporary victory. Um, and it's very hard to do perfectly because basically you need to understand. Fully, the behavior of all of the possible variants that this particular botnet has. So if I take down its command and control infrastructure that I know about today, does that mean it's not going to use different ones that I didn't know about tomorrow? And this was kind of a central piece of what my like kind of measurement the measurement piece of my work did was, we'll run the malware, remove, or basically pretend, make it think rather that the normal command and control infrastructure that it would use is down and then see what it does. Does it do something different? Does this elicit new information that you didn't know about before that you need to factor in? Because the, the takedown needs to be very complete, very holistic. Because if you leave even one uh, command and control server around, the botmaster is probably going to notice that something's going wrong when they stop getting those... Uh, those PayPal uh, account information and checks in the mail, and they're going to push an update immediately to address the issue. Um, and, and oftentimes, this isn't one person. There's probably like a team behind it, particularly for the ones that are more expensive. So you have people more or less on call. You know, I'm sure they're using PagerDuty or something. <laughs> and they see that something goes wrong, and they're going to remediate it right away. But even if you successfully take down the botnet, um, You clean up all the hosts, which is good, but you still face the issue of the people behind it are still around, and they still have their code, and they still have kind of the technical know-how for setting one of these up, and what's to stop them from doing it again? They basically lost a revenue stream for a little bit of time, but all the capital is still there. They just reinvest it, make a new botnet, and start making more money, Um, and some botnet takedowns have led to arrests others haven't um and and i think that kind of attacking this problem from all angles is really what what needs to make it work successfully
0: so so what is the proper response then if it's not just taking the botnet down what uh is this a problem that we can actually solve and if so to what extent
1: ooh man yeah that's a tough one um I'd like to add one more thing about the takedown is they're difficult to do without collateral damage as well. Um, there were a couple instances of of large takedowns that were focused on another word soup, basically DNS providers. So places you can register and, and use domain names. And in the process of trying to disrupt this botnet, one was on a Chinese one called 3322.org. And then one of them was a, a provider called No NoIP. Um, in the process of doing these takedowns, they disrupted the business of, of both those two companies. And then all these companies that relied on their services. And in the second case, in the No IP case, since it was more kind of centered on the, the Western world, uh, people freaked out. I mean, they were unable to like and you could quantify this in in monetary terms of because of the way you did this takedown these companies lost x million dollars and what are you going to do about it you know and the the solution was well we're done taking this down I'm sorry guys like we made a mistake here uh, because it's it's hard to disrupt core internet services like that it's,
0: it's, it's just, it's not easy. It, Th- that's it's not all to say- held together with uh, <laughs> like popsicle sticks and bubble gum for real all the way down. I'm consistently impressed that computers work at all.
1: I, I am too uh, at, at times. And it, it's, I mean, it's not easy to make them work, but Hey, it's somehow happening. Um, and it, it's difficult to shut down parts of the internet in a way that, other people aren't damaged as well. So that, that's kind of like another concern that I think makes people a little bit more hesitant to do this. Um, but as for what we should do, well, one thing that we've been consistently doing is kind of just improving security in general overall. A lot of these olds, uh, particularly the Worms and uh, other botnets, Configure, uh, you could not get those installed on newer Windows systems. You know, the, the exploits have since been closed. Um, the the systems themselves are more robust. And, and I think that's like one way of improving it. Um, I think the takedowns can be effective. I think it depends a little bit on the class of Botnet, like how the command and control structure is used. Um, the DGA ones are a good example where if... If you fully understand how the malware generates the domains, you can basically go to the registrar and say, don't let anyone ever register these domains. And now the botnet is done. You know, um, the problem is you have to do that in a, in a pretty, you have to do that holistically. You have to do that across the board because any one crumb that you leave is probably enough for them to completely regain control. So it requires a lot of collaboration to do well. um, And timing is is also very important. Again, going back to my point, I think it's probably better to leave them running if you can use that as a means to gather information on the the operators themselves. Mm -hmm. Because I think without fear of monetary loss or the loss of freedom, there's very little reason to not lay low for a couple of months and go ahead and do it again.
0: Yeah, and that's... I think the um the strongest protection against not getting thrown in jail for doing illegal stuff on the internet is going to be I'm in a country that doesn't like to extradite to a country that wants to throw me in jail. Like that is it's not that you're not going to it's not that they're not going to know who you are. It's not that they're going to be able to dig in and figure out like oh you're coming from this country or whatever it's like oh we don't have a treaty that allows us to extradite people from that country, or that country is just straight up malicious most of the time and it's it's interesting the the additional insight i've gotten into uh how kind of a global network works of like traffic from these particular countries it, when you see it there's a pretty high probability that it's not friendly um, so so yeah the you know because I, I I hear lots about botnet operators. Coming out of like Eastern Europe or Russia or China or North Korea or these different places where it's like doesn't matter if you know who they are those people aren't flying over here um, so so even when you know who the operators are, there's the additional problem of well if those operators aren't within reach of the uh, you know legislative system that you have, then you're kind of out of luck certainly
1: um, and there have been some minor cases where while they're vacationing in uh, Malta or, or Ibiza, they catch them on the way, you know? Um, there have been at least a couple of cases of that happening. Uh, but, but I agree that, that the shielding of, of you know, um, another country maybe more okay with it is, is certainly a problem. Yeah. And you can go with the whack-a-mole approach of knocking down the botnets. And it, it, I don't mean to say there's no benefit there's clearly benefit at least to individuals that are infected right like if you get a new credit card guess what they're not going to steal this one like that's pretty nice right (laughs) um and after the botnet's been taken down usually people can do interesting stuff after the fact I, i mean again going to this case if if the command and control server is down, and now the good guys are in control of the command and control server. You can see where all the infections are. Mm-hmm. So now you can go, hey, Comcast, Verizon, at and all of these hosts are infected. I don't know exactly what they're going to do with that information. But <laughs> like, oh,
0: cool. Throws it in trash. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. It, no, no, but But organizations, companies might be interested yep. in this. Certainly... More secure networks, national labs, things like that, they would want to know this, so you can kind of then go through the process of cleaning things up um, and and if you've If a machine has one piece of malware on it, it it's often the case that it has more than one piece of malware on it, so in the event that one botnet is taken down, it may lead you to the discovery of of one or more. Uh, on, on sets of machines, so yeah, there are benefits, but it's one of those things where it's like if they're very costly to do, and the operators are going to start doing it again in two weeks, should we invest our resources elsewhere? Mm. And the the answer is maybe, you know. But but I can see some benefits to it, and at least whenever a botnet gets particularly large, uh, the the community does panic and start to um, generate ideas for, for for tackling it. I mean, Configure is a notable example, but other botnets had kind of cross-discipline groups working on how can we shut it down or how can we mitigate the damage that it might cause.
0: Okay. So we're running short on time, but I wanted to end with this. In your research, if you could pick your top 3 most notable, whether it's notorious or interesting due to technology or just top 3 botnets, what do you got?
1: Oh man, good question. Um uh I'd say Conficker is probably number 1. Um it really freaked people out. It was quite sophisticated and it's the first one that really I think made the world afraid of 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 botnets in general. It it was just so large that it could do so much damage if if the operators chose to do it. Um and and there's a lot of interesting work on dissecting it. It's probably one of the most well-understood pieces of, of, of malware out there. Um, which other ones, man? Hmm. DNS changer was pretty interesting. This is one that like messed with local settings, which made it much harder. Basically it changed your local DNS resolver. Huh. And so it made it difficult to see what was going on on a more global scale um, until you kind of figured out how it, it worked. Uh, that's actually an interesting case going back to the takedown one. That one was fairly successfully taken down, partially because of how it worked um, by the FBI and you know academic and industry partners as well. Um, and that, that was one that also kind of grew rather rapidly um, and panicked people. And they were like, well, we got to do something to take care of this. Um, I don't want to say Mirai because it's like, man, brute force and passwords, it's so <laughs> yeah. lame. Um, but Because it's just like, oh, come on, really? Like, we're still here? Come but on, do something. Yeah, yeah. Just anything, man, anything. Um, I really like the old school worms. There's a really great paper called How to Pwn the Internet in, I don't know, 7 hours or 14 hours or something like that. And it's basically a study. I don't remember which one. It's Code Red or Slammer or it's one of these older worms where, you know, I send you a couple nasty packets and now I control your machine. You know, thankfully, these are few and far between these days. But back then, it was like every other month. <laughs> yeah, for real. And, um, and this just the speed with which it grew was exponential curve. Yep. you know. Mm-hmm. Just like, just straight up, baby. Like yep. it was just right away. Um, and and I think that, and maybe the older Morris worm as well, are what caused people to start being like, I don't, I don't know. Maybe we got to worry about this security <laughs> thing. Like this is this is looking like it could be bad. And you know, those are nice stories to see. And then it also makes me feel a little optimistic for the future. To be honest, I mean, Mariah side. A lot of stuff has improved. Where you know you can't own every machine on the internet in 24 hours. You know, it's much, <laughs> much, much, much harder to do that, and that makes me sleep better at night, knowing that we've we've come forward. You know, we're, <laughs> yeah, it's we're a improving. small so, amount. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But but seeing those horror stories, I just I can't imagine working as a like a network operator when that was happening, and you're just like, you know, why are half a million uh, IPs. <laughs> blasting the same packet at me like what's going on um those must have been exciting times
0: yeah yeah exciting in the uh uh, my my job oh my god i hate it sort of sort of ways (laughs) the three takeaways for today's show are one botnets are large swarms of infected computers whether they be laptops desktops phones or iot devices two taking down botnets is hard and is not always the best approach And three. The command and control channel for a botnet is often its biggest vulnerability and can be attacked to shut the botnet down. A huge thank you to Yasin Naji for joining us and sharing his expertise. With this information in hand, the next time you see a news article about a massive DDoS attack, you'll have a better idea of just who might be behind that attack and how they can be stopped. As with most things security, understanding how it works goes a long way to staying protected. With any luck, you might even avoid taking part. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Security Explained. If you enjoyed listening, we'd love to hear from you. We're always looking for new topics that our audience finds interesting and you might be able to pick our next show. Feel free to reach out via social media or give us a rating on your listening platform to let us know how we're doing. You can find us on the web at securityexplained.fm or on Twitter at SecExplained. Thanks again, and until next time, stay safe.